Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. Luther is alleged to have said that the doctrine of justification is the article on which the church stands or falls. I don't know that my next guest would put it exactly that way, but he'd certainly say that the doctrine of justification stands at the center of our systematic reflection on the meaning of salvation as well as Christian piety, mission, and life together. In his two-volume work on the doctrine of justification, Michael Horton seeks not simply to repeat noble doctrinal formulations and traditional proof texts from the Bible, but to encounter the remarkable biblical justification texts in conversation with the provocative proposals that, despite a wide range of differences, have reignited the contemporary debates around justification. It's a great book, and we had a great conversation about it. I give you Michael Horton. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Scott. So you have written a two-volume work on justification. This is like not like necessarily something that would be a beach read just because of the size of it. But this is something that, as a theologian, you don't think its significance, I take it, is resigned to academic circles, but it's got wide import for people like existentially, existentially, personally, for how they live their lives. Is that is that fair to say? Absolutely. Uh, justification, I'm sure you'd agree, is a doctrine. It has to be unpacked, but it's a doctrine that lies at the heart of our Christian faith. It's it, it's the heart of the gospel. And if uh, I approached it from a, a more uh, academic perspective, uh, in terms of history and uh, interpretation of of the New Testament and so forth, it's uh, it's only to try to engage with contemporary. Uh, debates and discussions in the academy. But anyone can read this, I hope, and uh, someone who really wants to. It's about, it's about motivation, not about intelligence or training. Uh, it's motivation. If people who are really motivated to to dig in on, to this subject can read it, I hope, read both volumes and say, oh yeah, okay, I don't get all the debates, but I, I, I get the gist of, of what he's trying to say here. This is a mind-blowing doctrine. Now, the average kind of person, I think, that is a relatively thoughtful consumer of, of, of media and NPR and things like that. If you ask them what the essence of the Christian religion is and, and most religion, they're going to say something like, well, you know, lo- love God or love, you know, the, or, or, you know, the, the, tra- the creator and, and, and love the world that God's made. And, and, and basically that's at the essence of, of all really, you know, that's the golden rule of all religion. My, my sense is that this, in your opinion, would be a kind of putting the cart before the horse and, and is sort of a, it would not give you a, a proper understanding of what is at the essence of Christian religion. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we, we believe the gospel, the good news of what God has done in Christ, that message announced creates faith. Faith creates love and love bears the fruit of good works. You got to get that order right. Uh, and a lot of people are looking for the fruit today, but not the root. And I hear even in Christian circles, people talking about uh, the gospel being 
loving God and your neighbor. Well, actually, Jesus said that's the summary of the law. And so the first thing we have to do, I think, is clearly distinguish the law, God's expectations of us, which are summarized by love, and what God has done for us in Christ, which is the gospel. That's something he's done for us, not something he tells us to do, something he tells us is done. There's a psychiatrist I'm fond of named Frank Lake. He died in the early 80s, but he wrote like a thousand page integration of theology and psychiatry. And he has a section on sleep disorders. And he says that basically, if from zero to two, you get the message that acceptance is a gift from your source being your parents, with all your libidinous rage, with all your struggles, then you will sleep well, you'll, your human development go well. If you get in zero to two, the, the, the message that acceptance is a reward, it will lead to all kinds of sleep problems. You won't be able to free associate when, you're, when you fall asleep because you won't stop nightmares. It will cause all sorts of depression, you know, all sorts of sort of deleterious things. And I was reading that it seems like everything we know about human development these days bears out as like an echo of of what you're arguing in this book, that unless you understand that that your acceptance from God, which comes through through Jesus Christ, if, if unless you know that that is a free gift that's undeserved, that that much like your human development will go wrong, it will your spiritual development will go wrong in, in, on a parallel track. Uh, absolutely, I I think it's really amazing, Scott, that in our day a lot of pastors uh, and theologians will say, "Ah, eh, the doctrine of justification may have been interesting in the 16th century." A lot of people might have been uh, sort of taken up with that subject, but today it's it's different. We're asking different questions. I'm like, seriously, I have teenagers. They have Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, uh, followers. How many followers do I have? What are people saying about me? Uh, am I liked? How many likes? Even think about that. How many likes do I get? Are you serious that we're not craving acceptance? And here's the thing. You can't have infinite value and acceptance from finite people and things. We were created for God, and therefore God's acceptance is what matters most. And if we have God's acceptance, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, if God is for us, he gave up his own son for us all, how will he not freely give him uh, give us all things? Who will condemn? It's Christ who died. More than that, who is raised and seated at the right hand of God. It's interesting, in, in your two-volume work here on justification, you you, you make an interesting move. You say, look, uh, the doctrine I'm talking about might, you know, the, the language might not always appear with the same prominence in every epic of church history. But but if you focus on Jesus and this great exchange, right, that, that this this trading of places, this mm-hmm. this 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 sort of substitution that you find it early on in the church fathers and, and you put together a pretty impressive uh, summary of quotations and contextually. But you say that, you know, if you were, if you had to sort of look at like a flashpoint, you compare origin versus Irenaeus, right? And you say in origin, you see something like a, a, a fall away and a return influenced by kind of Neoplatonism and that, and that really it becomes a sort of aided by grace, a journey which all can make. Uh, and, and, and it's almost like the form of, of that Neoplatonism determines the content versus you say Irenaeus where it's recapitulation. You can never go back and the future will never be what the past was, although it will be in some ways more glorious 
in many ways more glorious, but it's, it's, it, it's a, it's not an eternal return. It's, it's, it's a history that is determinative by what God does in Christ and, and us, you know, participating, sharing in that story return kind of, is that a fair summary of, of where mm-hmm. you see as a major breaking point early on in the history of the church? Absolutely. You know, uh, with Irenaeus, as you say, with the whole platonic and neoplatonic tradition, it's, you know, if you don't get it right the first time, try it again. Uh, get, you get a do-over in a reincarnation. Uh, well, that's really like our culture today. And really, that's the good news. The good news is I have another life. I'm going to be reincarnated in another form to try to get it right this time. And Origen really did not have a all right, here's the basic difference. For Origen, the whole his whole worldview, being Platonic, is that we have fallen away from divine being. So there's a divine part of us, and we've our souls, our, that divine part of us, have fallen away from God into bodies. And so salvation is basically getting away from our bodies and returning, our souls, our divine souls, returning to God. Kind of a Buddhist, if you think about it, kind of a Buddhist way of thinking as well. Uh, Whereas Irenaeus wasn't thinking in terms of exit and return, falling away from divine being, return to divine being. For Irenaeus, there is no divine part of us. We're creatures all the way down, but God has saved us in all of our creatureliness. It's not exit and return. It's promise and fulfillment. So really, he he recognized that, uh, as biblical scholars have said, the Bible introduced history for the first time. This I, idea that the the circle of pagan thought is broken out into a line of history by the promise and fulfillment narrative of the Bible. In other words, this is what has happened in the past. This is what you can expect in the future, in spite of all your opposition to God's grace and love, this is what he's going to do in Jesus Christ. Is it fair to say, and Aaron, it's a little off topic, but it, it, you get something like, because history is it, it, is something that's not a problem, right? It's not a problem with the fall or something that now we're in this historicized, that, that, that creation's goodness lies not in its initial perfection or something. It's good, but but in its perfectibility, it's a place that's meant to go on a journey so that so that you, you, you have, yeah. a, you have a, an unfolding story built into the beginning. Right. Yeah, it's it's a it, he had this wonderful picture that Adam wasn't finished. Adam and Eve had a calling, they had a vocation. They were like children who needed to grow up. And what's interesting is we we find the same picture of Christ, the second Adam in the gospels. Uh even though he was God incarnate, uh in his humanity we, we read he he grew in wisdom and understanding, in fear of God and stature before God and and his fellows. Uh there's a growth there in Jesus. Not a not a growth move, movement away from sin to righteousness, but from childhood to maturity. And that's what Adam and Eve were were moving toward. And God likes progress. God likes history. God invented it. God created a, an unfolding drama, the best story ever told, an unfolding drama that uh, human beings can't ruin. And it's really only when you read the last chapter that you realize that uh, this is as good as, as we—I mean, it's better than we can— I wonder how much of of the contemporary sort of seeming tension between certain segments of science that deal with origins and and 
uh, Christian thought, how much the problem is, is is not so much one of the Bible, but one of the Platonism, where 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 because of yeah. some some of this Platonist uh, lenses, it, it makes it harder to read, you know, to put the Bible in conversation with modern perceptions of origins because of the presuppositions about history and change and things like that. Yeah, I think that's really true. Yeah, you look at the different speech acts you have even in Genesis 1 where one hand God creates everything out of nothing, let there be and there was, but you also have this really interesting uh, other speech act where God says, let the earth bring forth and the earth brought forth. And so even in the earth bringing forth, even in not natural processes, God is still in charge. God is still the one who is as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, bringing about his purposes in history. Um, but it's not, yeah, it's not this idea of kind of, there's an all-at-onceness all in Platonism that a lot of Christianity kind of uh, help being pulled into sometimes. Uh, a lack of sense for history and progress, that God has a plan that's unfolding in history. It wasn't all there in the Garden of Eden. It was something that he was... He had a purpose for, so yeah, that's it's not a big part of the book, but uh, it's 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 I think a very important part of the story. The main thing between Origin and Irenaeus is Origin says we fall fell in a pre-existent world before this world existed. Our souls fell, and they merited different levels of being, and the worst souls got trapped in bodies. Irenaeus says, no, God has come to save us, not to help us save ourselves. God has come to save us in all of our humanity. It's not that we become less human. We become more human than we ever were. We fulfill, or not we fulfill, our humanity is fulfilled in the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we get we get in on that in his, in his train. And if you're choosing to read an early church thinker around New Year's Day or thereafter when you're making resolutions, pick up Irenaeus because you'll get the gym membership. Don't pick up Origin because you're not going to go to the gym. I mean, it's just not going to happen. <laughs> That's right. So you, so you then you kind of move on to tell a story where you, you one of the things I really appreciate about this about your first volume is you have a really nuanced treatment of Thomas Aquinas and you say, look, you know, you're a kind of Reformation Protestant guy, so you know the the the, the you know people are going to think, oh my gosh, he's going to really work Aquinas over here. It comes, you know, this is uh, the thrill in Manila. But you're really charitable and appreciative, and you think Aquinas actually, in some ways, moves the ball forward on what you think is at the heart of a biblical understanding of justification. In some ways, doesn't. You know, that some things he inherits from the Platonism and some other things, and there's some other influences in the air. But but it's you're you're ultimately you can look at Aquinas and say, hey, look, when some of these charges that theologians say semi-Pelagian or this or that, you know that no, 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 no. In many ways. He moves the ball forward, right, on, on certain important points. Oh. Yeah, and, you know, Augustine does uh, already uh, in the 4th century, 4th, 5th century, Augustine already moves that ball forward, and he, but yet he also messes things up. He's like the, the, the best of guys and the worst of guys on justification because from Augustine you get the, the, the total confidence that salvation is of the Lord. God rescues people. People don't rescue themselves with God's help. That was the whole, as you say, the whole debate with Pelagius. Um, we can't save ourselves. We need God to save us. It's all by grace. That's Augustine. 
like nobody else. I just I shouldn't say nobody else, but that's that's definitely Augustine. Aquinas did not at first believe that. Aquinas was closer to Augustine's opponents, and then he moved radically, as Augustine himself had, to a very grace-centered view of things. The, the problem is, as you say, the Neoplatonic uh, over our, you know, the basic worldview that we're being saved from our passions. We're being saved so that our reason, once again, can be in charge of our lower self. And so you have a different understanding of grace. Point. Uh, grace is basically something like penicillin that is injected into you when you have a bug. And it it's made to heal that disease and also strengthen you so that you can go on and merit further grace. Uh, whereas in the, in the biblical conception, uh, it's not a medicine. Grace isn't medicine. Grace is God's favor toward people who deserve the very opposite, not because of anything they've done, but because of what he has done in his son, Jesus Christ. Those are two of grace and of justification, but absolutely, what's interesting is Thomas Aquinas said, anyone who gets rid of the doctrine of predestination, namely that we're only saved because God chose us to be saved, anyone who gets rid of that is necessarily going to have a doctrine of merit that denies the gospel. Okay, I can say, well, Thomas, I think your doctrine of merit <laughs> uh, vitiates the gospel. But forget that for a moment. The main point is, gradually after Thomas Aquinas, a lot of theologians came along who said, actually, there is no election. We elect God, and that's how we merit his initial grace. And at the Council of Trent, which condemned the teaching of the Protestant reformers, that was the dominant view. That was the view held by many of the theologians, including the ones Luther, Martin Luther, was trained by. That's what Martin Luther was reacting against, that theology. And Thomas Aquinas would have stood with him to say, if you get rid of God's electing grace, then this, then even any talk of merit is going to to completely destroy the gospel. That's exactly what Luther was trained in, and he was reacting against it. That's why the bondage of the will is one of his early works that really emphasizes the importance not only of, well, it actually emphasizes the importance of election more in that book than he does the doctrine of justification. Justification becomes clearer in his mind as he goes along. You know, I followed your work for a while, and I think your treatment of Aquinas is it's it's you're so generous and so catholic in the best sense of the word right seeing him as part of the family and and it's part of what it means to be family you're honest about disputes right you're honest about in the family tree yeah you've also i mean you wrote your first book about reformation grace at like 17 right or something you were pretty young right something yeah yeah you're an 15, but yeah overachiever maybe you didn't you know had you, <laughs> had you really gotten that doctrine of grace sunk in too early you might not have been as productive i mean that's you know, but uh you also have <laughs> have been involved in, in, in certain polemical discussions and, and evangelical Protestantism in general is a, I mean, there, John Frame, a reformed theologian and apologist wrote this great thing about matrons, warrior children, and the, the evangelical reform tend to eat their young, right? Once there's a split, uh, it, it becomes autoimmune and everybody turns on themselves. So do you feel like that, it, how do those two Hortons, like, not to psychoanalyze you, but, uh, but, but just lay on your couch for a second. <laughs> how do those two Hortons 
interact like the the ecumenist catholic because you you are i mean you have your own convictions but and you're not afraid to debate about them and yet you're also always trying to find things in common with other christians i mean how does that coexist in you well thanks god uh i think <laughs> i yeah i i think that you know at the end of the day i hope i don't this would be my ideal I don't, it's, i'm sure it's not true but i would hope the issues i've been most polemical about have been at, at what I see as the heart of the gospel. And I'll still be polemical about those things. But then there are, you know, it's interesting, um, as Richard Muller points out, the Reformation was not a reformation of everything. Uh, the Protestant reformers were Catholics uh, in the best sense. They they were going back to the early church fathers. They were uh, taking the best of the uh, medieval writers, med- medieval theologians, uh, but even more than the reformers, because they were in that kind of reacting mode of the first generation, first and second generation, the the Lutheran and Reformed theologians who followed the reformers really went back. I mean, they they were better students even than the reformers, I think, uh, uh, students of the Church Fathers and of the the Middle Ages, and also of Eastern Orthodoxy. I mean, it's fascinating uh, how many quotes you find of. John of Damascus, and then uh, not just the church fathers, but but later codifiers of the Greek tradition, as well as the West, uh, throughout the writings of the, the Reformed Orthodox. It's just amazing. So Reformed Orthodoxy, that great period where our, you know, that produced our confessions, that period of, of Lutheran and Reformed Orthodoxy was far more ecumenical, far broader, far deeper, far richer, I think, than any, any Protestant theology that we have uh, in the 19th and 20th centuries, uh, certainly 21st century, we've got amnesia. Happily, <laughs> a lot of that is coming back now. You know, you have you have people like Scott Swain and Michael Allen and others who are really retrieving uh, much of that tradition and showing that, hey, the Reformation wasn't a, a a careening stop. It's not as if they thought Christianity had run underground and then burst again into the white of the reformers. Um, But engaging the wider Christian tradition and seeing that actually, no, this is the Catholic Church, not Roman Catholic Church. This is the Catholic Church corrected, the Catholic Church moving in a more faithful direction. Do you feel like age has has had a role in that for you too? I mean, because you started writing theology before yeah. you're, you're studying. I mean, how, I wonder how just age yeah. and pr- has, has ch- ha- inter- like changes the perspective or, or integrates those, those sort of, you know, the, the, the contesting for things when appropriate and yet also trying to be, uh, you know, to, to follow Christ's call that we could all be one. I mean, is age a, a factor in sort of seeing the, the playing field? Yeah, I'm sure it has. In fact, I thought about that when you asked the question, Forgot to mention it. I think it. Ha- I think it has um, age, just probably maturity, <laughs> uh, but also, um, again, delving more deeply into the great uh, minds of of the 16th and 17th century Reformed writers who appreciatively interacted with their predecessors, uh, Orthodox, Roman Catholic. You know. They they interacted uh, and and between Lutheran and Reformed they were they were more charitable than than the two traditions uh, became later. Um, I looked at that. And I said that really is what I want to emulate, and 
uh, I'm a, I'm sorry about some of the things that I've said casually. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that maturity, you just start saying, uh, you got to talk to people, not about people, not at people. You got to, you got to have conversations and, um, you know, we all come out. Those of us, this is a joke when people kind of uh, become reformed there, they go into what we call a cage phase where you get, you put them in a cage so that they, they don't hurt anybody. Uh, or themselves. There's a lot of frustration and anger. Why what, Why didn't I ever hear this in church? Why did I always just hear, you know, read your Bible more, pray more, uh, be more, do more? Uh, why, why didn't I hear basically these great doctrines about what God has done for me in Christ? I mean, like regularly, deeply. And so you get kind of frustrated with the state of the church. And I am still disappointed, saddened often, by the state of the church today. But you know what? The more you study church history, the more you realize time travel wouldn't solve this. There has <laughs> never been a golden age. Yeah, the human condition, whenever people say like, hey, I'm praying that we become a New Testament church, I'm like, well, careful, you could become the Corinthians. I mean, that's... <laughs> yeah. Or the, or the Galatians exactly. or the Ephesians or the... Yeah, there's no... There has been no perfect church, and that's because there's no perfect me. I mean, I often say to, to myself and to others, well, what do you expect? The church is made up of people like you. And you know, uh, if I if if I expect uh, a perfect church, wow, that's pretty arrogant. Do I expect a perfect me to belong to it? Of course, uh, you know that's ridiculous. We'll never have a perfect church or a perfect me, glory. Uh, but the doctrine of justification is what tells us right now: you already are righteous before God in Jesus Christ, and you will be glorified one day, as much like God as is possible for a creature to be because you're justified. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month? Or more, it's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Blythe, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Barry Stewart, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Cress, Stephen Rowe, Ben DeHart, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jennifer Underwood, Kai Whitpenig, Simone Garabedian, Samantha Konauer, and Jim Kirk. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. It's interesting you talk about the anger and the reform cage phase. I mean, you, you turn to the reformers and you, you point out how, how the, you know, the, the centrality of Christ and Christ alone is at the heart of, of what becomes this 16th century uh, 
body of work and thought. But it seems like in a lot of conservative evangelical churches in America, Christ alone gets translated to Christ at first. And, and, and then and, and you get that he becomes Jesus's life coach or something. And he's divine and everything, but he's still like and and his work is like the, the ticket into the entry, you know, the, the entry into the into the game. And then you're kind of on your own. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. It, he uh, the gospel was really good news at first. Uh, you hear this from Christians a lot. Uh, and now I'm not so sure because I don't know if I have enough fruit. I have, I look at my life and I'm not so sure. And, you know, it's sort of like the old Daisy thing. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. Uh, depending on, you know, moment to moment you say, well, now wait a second. I thought you said that, uh, Christ was sufficient that you, you believe in Jesus, well, yeah, that was enough to quote unquote get me saved, but now to stay saved, uh, apparently there's other stuff going on here. And Paul addresses that in Galatians, right? <laughs> Having begun by the Spirit, are you now trying to be perfected by your own works? Uh, and I think that's a lot of the teaching people get. The contract is really, uh, hey, here's a great prize that you've just won. And then there's the fine print. And a lot of people say, I'm sure people listening to this right now, raised in the church would say, yeah, okay, I get that. That's definitely what I was raised in. Um, is the gospel really free? Is God's grace in Jesus Christ really free? I'm not talking about a sanguine, syrupy, sentimental kind of, uh, oh, God loves you. He doesn't care about uh, what you do. Uh no, I'm talking about a real love that's where God says, oh, I care I care so much about what you do that justice had to be satisfied. And if I just said, oh, boys will be boys, let bygones be bygones, I never would have sent Christ. Uh, but I so love the world that I gave my only begotten son. So whoever believes will have everlasting life. It's interesting you say that because I think a lot of there's a lot of critique today in the church most fervently actually probably in the evangelical wing of the church of things like substitutionary atonement and, you know, implicitly the, the doctrine of justification you're talking about. But it, it seems like, you know, there's a place, in I think, in First John where Calvin says in a commentary where, where, you know, while we were enemies, you know, God, basically Calvin said, of course, God would have had to love us first or else there would be no incarnation, right? But, I mean, there's a rhetorical force to it. But so right. I, is it something like... The difference between I think what people are critiquing is something that says Jesus had to die so that God could love us. And that God being sort of angry, the, the sort of uh, caricature of a pagan sort of deity, as opposed to God loves us. And with this full love that you're talking about, that, that includes, you know, the beauty of, of God's concern for things to be put right. God loves us. Therefore, Jesus died. And so there, there's not that 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 that, yeah. that that like it seems like if people could get that second thing, then the, a lot of the critiques of substitution and stuff would would seem to be mitigated a lot. But somehow I think people hear the former. I think that's true. I think that's really true, Scott. That's why I spent a lot of time in that chapter trying to talk about how. Uh, yeah, here again, the doctrine of election comes in. Uh, Ephesians 1, 4, just as he chose us in love uh, to be his children in Christ. And so love is the basis for this. Love is what motivated God to send the Son. God so loved the world that he said, didn't God really hated the world, so he sent his Son so he could love it. Uh, that's a really important thing to say. Otherwise, as you're saying, substitution sounds like uh, the, 
a father who gets up on the wrong side and beats up his son and then, okay, now I, I got that out of my system and he can love us. That's a horrible view. It's a horrible view on multiple levels, as I argue there. Uh, but it's a view, I think, that a lot of people, even, even you t- I talk to a lot of people who grew up in very conservative churches and they'll, they'll, they'll say that's the message of substitutionary atonement they got. Now, I'm not, uh, they might not be fair uh, completely to what they grew up with, but a lot of people have heard something like that. And so I really think that we have to work extra hard to, you know, sinners in the hands of an angry God. You know, God is just angry. God is just walking around angry all the time. Well, God is angry at our sin. He isn't essentially angry. God is not, is not uh, you know, melancholic uh, frustration. God, God is 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 at peace with himself. He's love. But for God to be a good God, for God to be loving, he has to take sin seriously. What? Seriously? I mean, all these these girls uh in a in a cargo uh container uh being shipped around uh in sex trafficking rings. God's not gonna take that seriously because oh he loves everybody and at the end of the day everybody gets a, a trophy. Seriously? No. God is good. God is loving. But here's the thing. We are all the sex traffickers. We're the ones, as this is where it gets hard, we're the ones who have shaken our fist in God's face, and we may not be as bad as we could possibly be, but we're bad enough for God's judgment. And that's that's where Christ is, the good news is so good. I once heard a friend and mentor, Paul Zoll, uh, he was teaching a class at a church in Maryland, and he was serving as the rector there, and he, you know, he'd really brought in his sermons and in his rector's form the heart of the message of justification that you're talking about in this two-volume work. And he was saying that people say to me, Paul, 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 we love your message. We love your message. It's so true. But you have to be old to understand it. And we just can't. The young people will never get. And he said, Paul said, no, no, it's silly. The reformers were young guys who realized that the, the yeah. religion they had made them split off from themselves. If you talk about psychotherapy and brilliance, they were split off from themselves. And you know, they they found this message through the Bible and through and, and, and through an astute observation of human nature. And they realize that when you get it, when you're young, you get to live the rest of your life posthumously, that you can die and, and, and live posthumously. And cry. And I think that there's something you spend a lot of time like, clearing the way for the reformers. And you, you say, like, look, there's all these diagnoses. Oh, Luther was uh, tortured. It's sub- subjectivity, daddy issues, this. It was it was all nominalism. You say, no, 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 no. Like. You need a lot more nuance, right, to, to appreciate this this student of the Bible and the human condition that that's that you can't reduce to any of those influences that people often want to do, right? Right, exactly. Why why did uh, I mean you can you can say Luther totally misunderstood the Bible? Okay, that's a debate we could have. That's my second volume. Uh, is you know on the scriptural side of it, you can argue that. But what you cannot say is that Luther and Calvin and the other reformers weren't obsessed with reading and studying and interpreting the Bible. Why? A lot of a lot of their contemporaries weren't. They didn't want to hear any more Bible. They were, they, they, you know, the, the less Bible the better because they associated the Bible with, uh, you know, the picture of the last judgment and Jesus primarily as judge. And why did they run to the Bible? They ran to the Bible because there they found a gospel they weren't hearing in the church. And so that there's something there. I mean, you what they what they taught and preached 
the gospel uh, must be in the Bible if that is what they poured themselves into and were willing to die for. I mean, they were basically saying, you know, as Luther in his hymn, Mighty Fortress is Our God, says, that word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. That's That word is above all earthly powers. They, they came to not just believe that the doctrine was right. They came to realize that they had absolute hope apart from what this word, especially the gospel, had proclaimed to them. Yeah, you bring up your second volume, which I want to talk a little bit about now. You, 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 you lay the groundwork. You say, look, I'm going to look through this first volume. I've kind of cleared the history, tried to do some historical work, and now we're going to look uh, at the... By the way, uh, Albrecht Richel, the great 19th century theologian, would love this order. You know, he's, I remember he writing, I think it's Justification Volume, he says, you know, we often say, let's look at the Bible first, then the history of interpretation, then figure out what we think. You should always look at the history of interpretation because when people say they're reading the Bible, that's what they're doing anyway. They're talking about how the Baptists read the Bible. Right. Right. No, but you do a great job clearing the way. And then yeah. you say that on the terrain, the main sort of contenders today are are the new perspective on Paul people and maybe the apocalyptic kind of Paul people. And these are people that are saying that, that there's a sort of different way of looking at this. And you know, the new perspective people... Are, are are people that think that that maybe their argument is Luther reads the Bible too individualistically and and instead of works when he when when Paul's saying works of the law he's meaning rituals and ceremonial things that identify you as Jewish not the moral law that sort of thing it, what it, granting let's just grant the premise right that the new perspective was right on some of those points wouldn't Galatians still have a law gospel reading like so if what you're saying is the form of self-righteousness is not individual and psychological it's social and communal and the way that people judge other people and make their own way to god is less individual and more social that just sounds like the world we live in now you're talking about social media and tribal politics like that doesn't seem like luther's theology would be any less true it just means maybe he he got some nuances of the galatian tensions a little off yeah uh, exactly. And I don't even think he got the, the nuances uh, of the Galatians off. And I do think Calvin was, you know, Luther often said, uh, I, I chop down the trees and Melanchthon stacks the wood. Luther was brilliant at the big picture. Uh, I think Melanchthon and Calvin were more sort of uh, fine point exegetes, uh, you know, and and Calvin really goes in there and says, uh, I mean, it, it's really amazing when you read Calvin on Galatians. You come away saying he knew the new perspective in the 16th century, because here here's what Calvin says, for example, and Luther says similar things too. Uh, they say that is the medieval church, the, our critics, uh, they the theologians of the University of Paris, they say that when Paul says that we are not justified by the works of the law, he means by works of the law being circumcised and keeping kosher. He doesn't mean all laws. He doesn't mean that we're not justified by any works. He means we're not justified by 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 Jewish rituals. And 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 uh, Calvin really brilliantly and he's not alone there. Peter Martin Vermilli, all kinds of reformers are saying the same things, just good exegesis. They're saying that really doesn't make uh, sense. Why, first of all, would Gentiles uh, be be said to be condemned by the law? Uh, they haven't been circumcised. They don't keep kosher because they're not Jews. <laughs> How can they be condemned by a law they were never given? Um, 
and uh, you know all sorts of other arguments that they made. But it's interesting that that the position that they were rejecting was really identical to one of the main positions of the new perspective on Paul today. There are others that I could mention, but, uh, you know, part of their criticism is the reformers interpreted, especially Luther, interpret uh, uh, Paul's opponents as if they were cardinals of the, the medieval church. And his debate was basically Paul's debate. And, of course, that skewed everything uh Luther didn't understand that that uh, the the heresy he was de- that Paul was dealing with was totally different from whatever Luther was dealing with in the 16th century. Okay, that's part of the argument. The more you look into it, and I would just say to anyone who still you know is, has an open mind on that, volume two, that's where I go into these arguments. It is staggering how much of even E. P. Sanders, one of the pioneers of this perspective, even his description of first century Judaism corresponds exactly to what Martin Luther was up against. So, yeah, okay, you can quibble on perhaps certain points of his interpretation of Galatians, but not on the main. In the main, uh, I'm I'm fully convinced that the Reformers uh, got Paul right. They really understood what he was all about. And what it shows is, yeah, context is important. Historical context matters tremendously. Uh, obviously. But all of us throughout history are struggling with this whole thing since Adam, uh, since the fall. We've been struggling with this this thing of religion is about making good people better. Uh, we're like the plumber who took a look at Niagara Falls and said, give me a minute, I can fix it. We always think we can fix ourselves, and we can't, and we don't like that. And so we don't like the gospel. This is the problem with human nature. We're, we, we don't know how 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 bad it is. We haven't really taken the bandage off to see how much we need a rescue operation. Yeah, one of the other main contenders you say is people that, that look, there's there's they want to say that that this reformation reading of Paul misses his apocalyptic urgency. He's this kind of apocalyptic Jew that mm. that that saw you know that his apocalyptic imagination found its its tell us in in the Christ event and and that's where really all the action is right and and you you, you even point to you could maybe put Bart in this category although you say Bart you know doesn't jettison substitution or justification or certain forms of justification or things but to a varying degree uh generally it's it, it's cast by the wayside uh, but it seems like the, the the maybe it's overstating the case and and it seems like on a lot of these issues, you're arguing whether it's with justification or with uh, the cross, that it's often the critics that are the either or people, whereas people like you are both end people, that, that you don't mm-hmm. want to say Christ's death isn't a victory or also that it doesn't teach us things about the moral life. That that that, but it's you know that but it's a substitution for us and 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 other. So I I feel like some of the thrust of your argument, in the second volume, is look, most of the salutary things that you get in the exegesis of the of the new perspective, where where it's helpful, or you mentioned N.T. Wright is someone that's been a good dialogue partner, or or the apocalyptic folks, you could actually find in the position you're saying but but if you go with some of those other positions you lose some of the stuff you're trying to hold up as at, at the heart of the powerful message of the christian faith right exactly uh you know you can even look at it historically um the different the different camps different theological traditions 
Orthodoxy, for example, Eastern Orthodoxy, that uh, has typically says we don't care about justification. Yeah, we know it's in the Bible, we know it's there in places and everything, but it's just really not important for us. The real doctrine for us is deification, uh, that we are made as much like God as a creature can possibly be. Okay, well, in Lutheran and Reformed traditions, you know, we have a doctrine of deification, glorification. Uh, we, we, we say the same exact thing, but it's on the basis of the fact that God has already declared us righteous right now. Roman, our Roman Catholic friends will say, you know, it's not about justification. Basically, it's about sanctification. Uh, so uh, it's about us being made righteous and about our growth in 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 uh, in holiness and so forth, we say, well, yeah, we affirm sanctification. The the good news of the gospel is bigger than justification. We're not only no longer condemned and accepted by God as righteous, but on that basis, we're being made righteous. We're being made holy, and one day we will be made immediately, sp- spontaneously righteous. Uh, even as Christ is righteous, we'll be as much like God uh, as we can possibly be as a human. So. It, it's not either or. Uh, the new perspective says, well, it's not about justification by an imputed righteousness, God crediting sinners with the righteousness of Christ. It's not about that. Uh, it's a, it's about uh, the church. It's about Jew and Gentile being together in one body. We say, well, yeah, because we're justified, Paul, Paul is arguing that because we're not united by the works of the law— but united by Christ, Christ is our unity. Jew and Gentile are now part of one body. Uh, you go down the line there. You know, either either Christ's death is a victory over the powers, or it's a substitution. Well, Paul says in Colossians two that it's precisely because he canceled the written list of debts that we had, the judgments against us at the cross, precisely because God canceled that debt in a substitutionary atonement that he triumphed over the powers. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, death. Well, we focus on death, the the Eastern Orthodox Church says, more than on justification. Immortality more than justification. Uh, The the work of Christ solves the problem of death, not, not the problem of condemnation. But Paul says, in 1 Corinthians 15, that the reason we, you know, death is a death sentence. It's it's a curse. It's a judgment. But he says, you remove the judgment, and death is no longer a curse. Now death, where is your sting? Now death, where is your victory? Uh, And then preaches the resurrection. We're going to be raised one day because that sting has been removed. And so it's on the basis of God declaring us righteous in his courtroom, objectively righteous, because Christ's righteousness is credited to us. It's because of that event that we have victory over the powers, that we have uh, uh, victory over death, that we have uh, triumph over, over over the grave, that we have uh, a church where people from every tribe and language and cultural background come together to be one in Christ and not one in whether they listen to Fox News or MSNBC, uh, but one in Christ. And, and that, you get all of that, as you say. You get all of that, not just along with justification, but because of it. Yeah, it's interesting. Paul Tillich says that you know there are three root anxieties right in human existence. One is the fear of death or non-being 
The other is the moral anxiety. And the third, he thinks, is that of just nihilism or meaningless. It doesn't really mean anything. Anyway. And you quote in the beginning of your first line, Robert J. Lifton, this psychiatrist and brain research expert that says that many of our neuroses in society today are rooted in a nagging sense of guilt without knowing the source. He says the anxiety is a vague but persistent kind of self-condemnation related to the symbolic disharmonies I have uh, described, a sense of having no outlet for his loyalties and no symbolic structure for his achievements. It sounds like kind of what you're saying is that, look, that th- yeah, people might, their entryway might be one of the other root anxieties, but, but unless you get to the moral anxiety, you're never really going to get to the depth of the human condition. And, and one of the, if you have another starting place, it, it, it's going to be a cul-de-sac unless it gets this part of the story. So far from trying to reduce the story, you're trying to expand the story uh, as big as, as the Jesus at the center of it. Exactly. But before we're sexual beings and uh, physical, you know, you, you know, uh, 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 physical beings and, social beings and so forth. Before all that, we're moral beings. We, we are worded or spoken into existence by the Father in the Son through the Holy Spirit as moral beings responsible to the voice that we hear that has created us. And it, until, uh, until that reconciliation happens, until there's peace with that God at the moral level, everything else Christianity is not anti-sex, it's not anti-body, it's not anti-society. But until that issue is settled, there really can be no solution in those other spheres. They all get out of whack. If you focus on sex, us as merely sexual beings, as our culture does, sex loses all of its meaning. If you focus on, it basically makes gods of these other things that God gave us as gifts. We turn the gifts into gods. No, only God, the real God, not these idols, only the real God can condemn us and only the real God can justify us. I agree with you, although Donald Trump might be an excellent test case for your theory, because I don't know that sex has lost its meaning for him. But other in general, though, I'm with you. He's the most Christian president. You know what? Just the most. Nile. <laughs> I think he's a good example, really, of the nihilism in our culture around sex that basically is meaningless. Uh, it doesn't mean anything when it's taken out of the moral context. Andrew Sullivan recently, about, like last week, or two, well, yeah, I think December 9th, wrote a piece in the New York Times Magazine. He says, it's only when your meaning has been secured that you can allow politics to be merely procedural. So what happens when this religious rampart of the entire system is removed? I think what happens is illiberal politics. The need for meaning hasn't gone away. But without Christianity, this yearning looks to politics for satisfaction. And religious impulses, once anchored in mm-hmm. and tamed by Christianity, find expression in, without being anchored in, one, it find expressions in various political cults. You know, he says, we have the cult of Trump on the right, a demigod who among his worshipers can do no wrong. And we have the cult of the social justice on the left, a religion whose followers show the same zeal as any born-again evangelical. They are filling the void that Christianity once owned without any of the wisdom and culture and restraint that Christianity once provided. And, and you kind of echoed some of these sentiments. Wow, who's That's who, Andrew who, Sullivan. Who that? That's Andrew Sullivan. Oh, my goodness. That's Andrew Sullivan. That's awesome. Yeah, the piece is excellent. Yeah. I'll send it to you. But I, yeah, yeah and it, it, it's, it's excellent. I love that. Yeah. I, you wrote something similar in Christianity Today recently, didn't you? Like sort of saying that, that this is, it seems like these evangelicals are justified by their hope that Trump will give them a space, 
of prominence in the culture war as opposed to justified, you know, by faith in Christ. Yeah, I I really do think uh, that basically much of the, the Christian church in America is divided between uh, the conservatives who want their best life now, a kind of individualistic, consumeristic, uh, how can I be happy, individual freedom and so forth. Uh, how can I have my best life now kind of message in church? And that's the Fox people, Fox News people. And then on the other side, the MSNBC people, uh, how can I have our best world now? Now, here's the thing. How can I have, how can I have my best life now? Give me, give me the eight principles to be a better me. Or how can we make the, be- the, the world a, a better place? Those are all, both of those approaches are law that we got to realize it. They both fall in the category of law. They both tell me something I need to do in order to either be a better me or to have a better world. There's nothing wrong with law. I ask my wife. <laughs> she, you, you could be a better you. Uh, you know, but but the, that's not the gospel. And that the problem today is evangelicals and mainline liberals in their different ways are seeking to justify themselves by their works. Yeah, and ultimately law is powerless, right, to provide what it demands. I mean, only grace, could, like if, if law is to, if the best life and the best you and the best world is one animated by love, law can never, it can, it can curb behavior, but it can't do interior renovation work. Oh, exactly, exactly. That's what, that's what we, that's what we need. And justification is the basis for that. We need to be taken off of the, the, the family tree of Adam and grafted onto Christ, our living vine. So I mentioned you've also been, had an interest in apologetics and spreading the faith. I wonder why, as opposed to creation or science or, or historical things, why isn't more apologetics rooted in this sort of almost the natural theology of the cross? I said ironically, but... But Simone Weil says you look and see crosses all over the place. But you do like, why does everybody love Les Miserables, right? The the, the life changed by substitution, yeah. by vicarious. I mean, wh- or what we've talked about in human development. Why do you think that the church doesn't lead more with, you know, why do people love Brene Brown? You know, lean, lean, being honest about shame. I wonder why the church doesn't lean more into that as not something for in-house, but also to talk to the world about what the source of the human condition really is. I agree. Uh, you know, thing. Christians need the gospel every week too, and non-Christians, those outside the church, uh, they 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 need exactly that same message that we need every week. It's not like that group out there. Uh, they you know they need to get a tract or something. We need to accost them and say, ask them, are they saved? No, we 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 need the same thing, all of us. And the church is just that p- place where Christ delivers the goods to his people. And so I, I think it, it, you're, you're exactly right. We need to be, we need to, to understand the idiom of, why are people, since time immemorial, why do you have all these myths about dying and rising gods? Why do you have this longing? For, why do people throw their kids into volcanoes or in more 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 uh, uh, technologically advanced modern societies? Do the equivalent by giving their kid an iPhone at the age of three. Uh, you know, <laughs> why do we do these things? Why do we sacrifice uh, other people for our sins? Well, it's because we know that there is an ineradicable sense of our moral value and our moral culpability before a holy God who's made us. 
and we don't know what to do about it. Well, for a deeper understanding of, of that thing at the heart of the human condition, people could uh, do a lot worse than starting with your two-volume book on justification. I'll tell you, you, just like they took that one section from book three of the Institutes and call it the Golden Book of the Christian Life, you should just take the intro to this. And just take the <laughs> intro and publish it by Wayhorse Center or something. Because I, I thought the intro, I, I was really blown away by the intro. Because I mean, you don't, it's not the kind of intro you expect in a two-volume work like this. And I just think the intro should be excerpted and just made into a pamphlet. <laughs> Thanks, Scott. I appreciate it. The check's in the mail. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for spending time talking with me. Thank you, Scott. Take care. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Michael Horton for coming on the podcast. Do check out his book, Justification. You won't regret it. Thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.